On this week's Curiosity, the White House unveils a cybersecurity strategy, a new antitrust suit could determine the future of third-party testing, and Magecart continues to cause big problems. In our interview, we speak with Scout CEO Mike DeCesar on how enterprises are getting people on the IT and OT sides to play nice. Equifax fines, election lawsuits, and senators fighting with Capitol Hill. What more could you ask for? Welcome to Securiosity. Welcome to Securiosity for September 21st. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. Another week pack of news and we'll get to all of it. Really excited to talk about a lot of the things that happened this week. Another busy week in InfoSec news with both the public and private sector making waves in a number of fashions. We'll also talk to Scout CEO Mike DeCesar, who has had a really interesting year with the rest of IT and OT convergences and taking his company public. He also breaks down the term security orchestration, which is interesting because I'm not sure a lot of us out here have a good idea what it really means. So Mike breaks that down for us. But let's get to a full week of news. The White House announced a new national cybersecurity strategy Thursday in an effort to raise federal network defenses and more aggressively deter foreign adversaries from threatening U.S. interests. The strategy is a template through which federal agencies can carry out their own cybersecurity mandates, according to National Security Advisor John Bolton. The White House's approach to cybersecurity has changed markedly since Bolton's arrival at the National Security Council in April. In August, Trump rescinded a key policy document that governed the approval process for cyber attacks conducted by the U.S. government, potentially opening the door to more offensive operations. NCS officials had for months been pushing to replace Presidential Policy Directive 20 in an effort to give U.S. military hackers more leeway to go after adversaries. Greg, what did we learn from the strategy? So the strategy itself is at least the unclassified part of it, the part that was released on Thursday, is very defensive in nature. It talks about a lot of the same things that the Obama administration was talking about when it comes to defending uh, federal networks. Uh, The changes that were made, there was a lot more talk about critical infrastructure, and it broke it down a little bit more uh, into, you know, banking and finance, transportation, IT, healthcare, which um, totally makes sense from the way that the government is currently working on it. But what was interesting is during the call, there was a media call where John Bolton spoke yesterday, and that call was a lot more offensive in nature, and it goes back to the PPD-20 conversations that we've been having in the stories that we've written, where John Bolton said along the lines of like, look, we're, we're going to be more offensive in nature, which let's pull out that term a little bit more, it means we're, we're going to do a lot more hacking. Let's put it that Good. way. Uh, the, the NSA and Cyber Command are going to have a more streamlined process to go after adversaries if, if need be, which Yeah, I honestly think that it's a good thing because I think that we need to be a little bit more offensive in the way that we react to some of this stuff. Uh, You know, the Justice Department, we've talked a lot about it. The Justice Department has been really big on indicting hackers and Mm -hmm. charging hackers, and that's all well and good, but I don't think that's going to deter anything until we start actually doing, you know— taking action in the form of striking back against our adversaries, whether it be Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, or any real groups that are causing pretty big problems. So, um, look, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this is carried out moving forward, but this administration has said they want to be aggressive with that. Um, Hey, then we'll we'll see when the rubber meets the road here what's really going to happen. So, Registered voters will use Georgia's current paperless electronic voting machines in the upcoming midterm election per a ruling in an ongoing lawsuit over the security of the state's election process. Plaintiffs were suing the state and had asked for a preliminary injunction requiring the state to use paper ballots and optical scanners in order to avoid security risks associated with paperless machines. State officials admit that the current system needs an upgrade but maintain that it's secure. Uh, The judge chastised state officials, though, in a ruling earlier this week for having their heads in the sand on election security, but ultimately decided that overhauling the system on short notice could bring about problems of its own. The case is ongoing, however, and plaintiffs are pushing for permanent injunction for future elections. Jen, 
I'm interested to hear your thoughts here. Do you think this sort of paves the way for the other states that aren't relying on paperless elections to wise up and make sure they have them in future elections? Because I don't think they're going to have them for the midterms at all. No, and I think it does, um, you know, set a a good precedent on on what other states should do. But, um, and it is too late to sort of change their process Uh, But let's hope it's more secure. Were there problems in Georgia? So right now, the way that Georgia is set up, it doesn't use paper machines. It uses what's called DRE machines, which are, you know, just it's all – all electronic. And there's been lots of problems. In, I shouldn't say there's lots of problems. There's been lots of controversy around just elections in general in Georgia. Uh, the Secretary of State, who is also running for governor, has done some stuff with voter IDs and, and voter registration roles. And there's been some purging of some roles. So there's a lot of noise around elections in Georgia, period. I think that right. this is part and parcel with that. Through uh, a vacuum looking at this, I can see how the judge ruled in this way like look it's approaching october right there's, there, no there's way. absolutely no way yeah. that you're going to be able to get the infrastructure in place to have paper records in georgia throughout the state that's it's just not going to happen but i think that the judge did a good job of being like guys we've been having this conversation for a while now you need to wise up and beyond 2018 this needs to be fixed and i would not be surprised if this permanent injunction that we're we're talking about sees the light of day in early 2019, mid-2019, because this is something that's going to need to change. We've been talking about it ad nauseum, and we're going to continue talking about it ad nauseum as the 2020 elections approach, but... We're really going to be tired about voting and Russia. Well, I mean, well, it's not just Russia, but I think voting overall, the election security right. is, I think, people well, – well, it shows that people care. I, I think that that's, a, you know, an interesting point about this is I don't think anybody was thinking about this until we saw what happened in 2016. And, right. and now, even throughout all of the noise that surrounds it, one key point is that, huh, I didn't know that this was a possibility just from a voter perspective. Right. And I think that voters and people that weren't thinking about this before are now thinking about it and now want to see something done. So so um, moving on. So with a month left on a deadline, Proofpoint says federal agencies have made significant progress in hitting the DMARC deadline. However, the company is doubtful that each one will actually make it in time. Department of Homeland Security issued a binding operational directive last year ordering all agencies to have the highest level of DMARC within a year. While more than half of the total number of agency domains are in the green, Proofpoint says 25% of the 133 agencies subject to the directive are fully compliant with all of their domains. The rest of the agencies are a mixed bag. So, Greg, do you think the agencies are going to hit the deadline? You know, this report is really interesting to me because I have sources telling me that things are not as rosy as they seem. Um, I think about a lot of Wait, you thought 25% was rosy? Well, I think that a lot of these reports, a proof point has done these reports, Agari has done these reports, and they say that progress is being made. Okay. They, they don't necessarily paint it as, oh, yeah, everything's great because, look, it's the federal government and everything hits deadlines with, with right. federal IT. That's just the way that it is. But I think that there are a lot of agencies that are really wrestling with this problem. Like, for instance, the State Department. I know. For instance, the State Department has, you know, a lot of federated uh, infrastructure. They sure. Think about all the embassies that are out there. Um, there's not always a CIO or a CISO in an embassy like that. So how are they setting up their IT? Do they even have an IT setup at all? Like, are they even really using their State Department-issued emails? Okay, and if they are, right. the minute you turn on the, the P-reject, it starts to break stuff. And then suddenly you're on the phone with somebody in... I don't know, Marrakesh or Singapore or I don't know, anywhere else that the State Department has uh, a footprint and you're dealing with that while you're also trying to hold diplomatic relations. It's not a great thing to handle. Right. And I know for an instance that it's it's not like there are 20 or 30 people that are working on DMARC in the State Department. It's more like in the single digits. 
and not well, I not eight or nine. Like we're yeah. talking between one to five people that are dealing with this for a huge federal agency. And this is what's going on all over the place. So look, next month, it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. Yeah. Proofpoint and Agari put out these reports. And it's interesting because that they can look at the email headers and that's how they can figure out whether uh, agencies are being compliant with this. But I think there's more to the story here. And there's a website where you can read all about it, cyberscoop.com. Uh, come read all about it because we are going to be covering this as it runs up yeah, to the deadline absolutely. for the uh, BOD. So code has been discovered siphoning credit card numbers from a consumer retail technology website, Newegg. I'm sure a lot of you out there, if you're listening to this, uh, listening to this podcast, you're familiar with Newegg. Um, security researchers from two cybersecurity companies published reports Wednesday, uh, Risk IQ and Velexity, their researchers discovered instances of code linked to MageCard, a group that has been behind a slew of recent high-profile credit card number breaches. MageCard is the same group behind the theft of data at British Airways and Ticketmaster UK. Jen, it sounds like a lot of these companies could use help from NS8, who we recently interviewed. Yeah, I mean, they really could. And imagine, you know, if a company like British Airways and Ticketmaster um, are being breached, imagine what that means, how you know, the smaller companies are that can't spend as much money. Right. So I think that is scary. You know, we're seeing big companies with a lot of money to spend on cyber. And I think what's interesting here is that it's not necessarily code that was homegrown inside these companies. Like, yes, Ticketmaster or sure. British Airways, they have developers and everything like that. But look, they're contracting out just like anybody else. So a lot of this is on third party. Right. A lot of this is the third party customer loyalty programs and the third party mm -hmm. payment platforms. And they're the real companies that are, at, you know, have the real problem here. And I've done some homework on some of these companies and a lot of them are startup companies. Like they only have 60, 70 employees and security gets attached on yeah. to somebody that's just in the technology wing too. So they clearly have some issues that they need to work through. And again, uh, I, I don't mean to be a shill, but NSA, NSA. A, we did an interview with them. They protect against this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, it is definitely worthwhile to say, look, you you need to check your payment platforms if you're doing online retail. Uh, clearly, like it's not just a smaller, medium business size thing. British Airways, huge company. Ticketmaster, huge company. Absolutely. Newegg, yeah. one of the most popular online retailers on the internet. I mean, th these problems can affect anybody. So you, you really have to shore up your online payment platforms. That's the lifeblood of your company. You should be paying extra, extra attention to it, especially now that we have a financial uh, you know, cybercrime group really going after it and really going after these cards. All right. Researchers at Slovakian cybersecurity firm ESET discovered that add-ons for the popular open source media player Kodi were part of cryptojacking campaign extending back to at least December 2017. The cryptojacking is one of the few known instances in where Kodi's repositories or add-ons have been used maliciously. The malware found to be operating in the popular Bubbles and Gaia's add-on repositories as users updated their repositories, the malware continued to spread across the ecosystem. Greg, explain to me why this is an issue. So this is really interesting to me because I use Kodi. Um, and look, it's not a huge issue because it's cryptojacking. Cryptojacking is just forced code that loops your machines into mining some type of cryptocurrency for somebody somewhere. It's it's really more of an energy hog and intrusive more than anything else. It's not ransomware. It's not credential stealing. Like, you, you're going to be fine. However, it does show that even the Cody system is susceptible to malware. So Cody has made uh, a lot of noise in the fact that it's not just a cybersecurity problem as much as it is a piracy problem. So for anybody out there that's not uh, familiar with Kodi. Kodi is basically a platform that allows you to tie into repositories and add-ons. Add-ons is just another term for app basically at this point where it allows you to connect to cloud repositories that are streaming all types of entertainment. And a lot of that entertainment is just bootleg TV shows, bootlegged movies. Um, think of the way that torrents worked, but instead of downloading torrents, you're now streaming torrents. So 
um, there's been a lot of noise from the actual studio developers and the people making this content that, hey, we need to shut this stuff down. Um, and so there's been a lot of like astroturfing campaigns saying, oh, there's a lot of malware, this is really bad, and the code community has turned around and said, no, that's not true at all. Well, it just shows that, okay, yes, there's no like real malware or ransomware or anything like that, but the Cody repositories are open to yeah. malware and they can be abused just like any other piece of code on the internet can. I've had people reach out to me and yell at me for some reporting that I have done saying, oh, you're spreading FUD about the Cody system. <laughs> and look, I love the Cody system. It's really, really cool to see how this federated system has sort of come online and this underground thing has has come online. I'm all for open source uh, hardware and, and, and software and seeing how this is proliferated, but still open to malware. If it's connected to the internet, it's open to malware. And that's not you know, people are going to abuse that just as they're Absolutely. going to abuse anything yeah. else. So it is an issue to watch out for. I just, it's not a huge issue because look, it's crypto jacking. And again, it's just intrusive. It's not a detriment to anything. But again, it shows that the the door is open for malware to be on this platform, just like it's open to be on any other platform Absolutely. out there. So credit monitoring giant Equifax, it's not a week unless we're talking about Equifax at some point, has been hit with the maximum penalty from the UK's data protection agency for its actions related to the company's massive data breach. However, that fine is really, really small. The maximum fine under the law, the UK's 1998 Data Protection Act, is only 500,000 pounds, which equates to about $665,000 in US. Uh, had the breach happened after the new GDPR law had gone into effect, we all know that Equifax would have been looking at a $20 million fine, if not more. Jen, you got to be thinking that Equifax is thanking their lucky stars that this didn't happen a year later. I'm sure they are, but I'm, you know, really happy to hear that it's going to be $20 million or more in the future if something like this happens again. We spent um, some time yesterday co-hosting a cybersecurity uh, roundtable um, for MAVA, which is the Mid-Atlantic Venture Association. Um, you brought some really smart researchers, um, VCs, and, um, and companies together um, that are working in cybersecurity. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about is, you know, why so many companies um, – don't seem to blink when big breaches happen. And it's because really it's it's sort of a, you know, what's cheaper, right? Is it cheaper to let people um, stata get breached or to, to sort of fix it? And, you know, right now and, and historically it's, you know, cheaper to sort of let these breaches happen and, and you know, and not fix it. Right. Or fix it later. $665,000 I feel like is a rounding error. It really is. Yeah, Equifax. absolutely. Like that's the salary of... And, and maybe quite a CISO yeah. and a deputy CISO, maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe, another, maybe three people overall. Like, that's nothing. So it was funny to me when Equifax said Thursday when they were disappointed by it. Like, no, publicly you're disappointed. Inside you're like, oh, okay, if this was June 2018, yeah. we'd be, like, really, really and <laughs> screwed we've, here. Right, and we've learned from, um, you know, other data breaches that, you know, the average, you know, stock – price fall of, of a company is what, like 5%? Yeah. Which, right, again, sort of a rounding error. So um, somebody's got to hit them somewhere where it hurts. Right. So, yeah, Equifax um, gets out of Dodge relatively unscathed. Uns yeah. Uns unscathed with this one. Well, good so. for them, and, and glad we'll be um, hopefully protected a little bit more with bigger fines. So GovPay now, an online payment provider used by thousands of local government agencies across 35 states, was found to have left 14 million receipts viewable to anyone who simply changed a few digits in a URL. While the exposure is not believed to have been exploited by malicious actors, it would have been avoided with basic vulnerability testing. The old receipts dated back as far as 2012. So, Greg, am I hearing this right? How easy is it to attack? This is, I mean, right there, changing a few digits in the URL. You, don't, you just have to be computer literate. To know this, right. you don't have to be some big cybersecurity expert. Like I, I it, this is as basic as basic gets. It's a few keystrokes, and that's it. Some some knowledge on how um, a website catalogs its data and the delete key. I mean, that's that's really it. This really reminds me of some vulnerabilities that we heard about when I was in high school. 
right. almost. Yeah. Like it, it just goes into the way that it reminds me of the way that you used to be able to find website indexes just by putting website.com slash index.html and that wasn't protected. Like that happened all the time. To have something similar happen in 2018 that could also pull up like information on parking fines or you yeah. know, just billing inside local governments with some PII in there. It's bad. It's bad. It's really, really bad. Like this is, we, we talk about basic cyber hygiene all the time. And this is exactly what we're talking about. Like somebody really dropped the ball here um, in not making sure that this was secured. So Again, if, if you have these systems out there, do a basic check. You don't need us talking about how <laughs> changing a few digits in a URL can really make headaches yeah. for your customers Amazing. and your clients and the people that store the information in your systems. This, this shouldn't happen. Let's, uh, I'll, I'll say that, look, a lot of what we talk about is complicated. This is not complicated. This is simple. Therefore, yeah. this should not happen. Yeah. So it reportedly took Apple weeks to pull the plug on a popular privacy-violating app, and Marco Rubio wants to know why. The Florida senator wrote to Apple CEO Tim Cook on Wednesday asking how the tech giant will get faster in addressing security bugs in its products in the future. The app in question is Adware Doctor, which researchers pointed out last month that was siphoning off user data to a server in China. For a company that prides itself on prioritizing user privacy and security, the delayed response is extremely disconcerting, Rubio wrote in a letter. So, Jen, do you think Apple even bothers to answer this letter? I'd be really surprised if they did. Yeah, I don't understand why Rubio would even take Apple to task other than just basically, like, wrapping the knuckles of Apple. Like, th this reminds me of the stories... Of, of a hypothetical that almost happened when the Kaspersky stuff went down, that it would be like if Rubio wrote a letter to Best Buy, for instance, if Best Buy was still selling Kaspersky stuff after all the information we know about Kaspersky <laughs> was put out there. Right. But it's like, but that the letter would say, why are you sell or why are you selling bad? products like it's not best buy can't fix those products like is apple going to stop carrying apps from companies like trend micro or semantic or any one of those companies no they're not going to do that they're going to do exactly what they did or, or they're going to depend on the companies to do it pull the app fix the app put it back on the store like, i bet there's millions of people who read all the information about iwear doctor and continue to use it anyway right and and that's because they it, just don't care. It, this is a lot of just bluster, which, hey, that's, you know, what Washington does. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't I, – I would imagine that this is sitting in an email inbox in Apple. Yeah, it, it in, in an is. Apple lawyer's yeah, inbox. Like, like, yeah, okay, we're, we're going to continue to talk about the new products that we just released and all the privacy – yeah, speaking that, of, are you on your way to get a new iPhone? Um, I don't know if I'm necessarily going to get a new iPhone. I think what's interesting to me is the update to iOS, particularly that the – and this is I, – I endorse this. This is Securiosity endorsement. I'll, I'll go <laughs> this way. So there's a cool feature in iOS now where if you have a third-party password manager, that there is an API that connects all of your apps and all of your browsers in the same way that it does if you were on like a desktop, the same way that your password manager autofills in the forms that you have on your computer. It now does that on the phone, which is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it, it's, it is a meshing of security and convenience, which I think is the big hurdle for making security more mainstream overall. Yes. So now you really don't have an excuse. Get a password manager on your phone if you have an iPhone and fill that thing with passwords that are secure and you have no idea what they are and let your password manager do the work for you. I think that is a great feature that, that Apple has feature. rolled out. I'm excited to get it on my phone uh, and I'm excited to tell people to follow suit. <laughs> All right, let's move on to some fights. So a messy fight within the cybersecurity industry has spilled into public view after security testing NSS Labs filed an antitrust lawsuit against multiple heavyweight vendors. The suit alleges that CrowdStrike, ESET, and Symantec conspired to restrict testing of their products 
causing substantial damages to NSS Labs' business. The episode is a reminder that while cybersecurity professionals agree on the need for third-party testing of software, it can still be a hotly contested issue. So, Greg, how much impact do you think this suit is actually going to have? So, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch because this is a long... I don't want to say it's a long-standing feud necessarily, but one of the people that NSS Labs... One of the people. One of the countries... One of the companies that NSS is targeting here is CrowdStrike. And CrowdStrike has sued NSS Labs for their work in the past. Mm -hmm. So there is some bad blood here. Not that I'm saying that either lawsuit was necessarily frivolous, but it's getting to the heart of some stuff. Look, we talked to NSS Labs CEO Vic Patak Mm -hmm. out in uh, Vegas, and he talked about, you know, how he's continuing to do this work sort of unabated. Like, this is his business, and this is important because there needs to be somebody out there talking and figuring out what products are good and what products aren't. And, you know, he said in a blog post that some vendors have not been living up to their responsibility to protect consumers, and they know it. He's calling people on the carpet. This is the business model. Like, if your products are good, then they're going to talk about it. But if their products aren't, they're going to talk about it as well. But if you're not going to play ball, then it really is going to get feistier than it's been. And we need companies like NSS Labs to do this. Yeah, whether it's NSS Labs or uh, just any third party to test these products. Look, we talk about snake oil. We talk about FUD all the time. We want to get rid of this. I don't think that I don't think that what NSS Labs is proposing here is like trying to upset the apple cart anymore. They're trying to hold people to standards to make sure products are good. This happens with everything else. Cars, phones, um, kitchen appliances. um, You know, the list goes on and on. So I think this is a really interesting lawsuit and I think that this could pave the way for the industry acting a little bit better when it comes to FUD and snake oil and getting products out there that really do what they say. Like, it's time to grow up. And if it needs to be done through litigation, uh, so be it. So on to the rapid-fire funding section. There was some more funding news this week. Uh, One round that happened, Fidelis Cybersecurity announced a $25 million raise from existing investors to support and scale its automated detection and response services. Uh, Fidelis says the investment will strengthen its main platform, Fidelis Elevate, as well as a more recently announced service, Fidelis MDR. That product, the MDR product, is designed to complement the main platform with round-the-clock access to security experts who can respond to immediate threats. Fidelis competes with all the big names like we were just talking about, CrowdStrike, Symantec, FireEye, Carbon Black, and others. And then another round announced earlier this week, Scythe announced a $3 million... Scythe announced a $3 million round in seed funding led by Gula Tech Adventures for its attack simulation platform. The company's product allows customers to conduct simulated adversarial campaigns against their systems in order to assess their cyber defense readiness. Scythe says that it uses a catalog of threats to automatically deploy a combination of threat actor communications and endpoint capabilities on the production environment. Jen, what interests you here from these two raises? So, so obviously it's going to be Scythe for, for a lot of reasons. One, it's local. Two, it's a seed round. And, and three, um, it's led by um, Rangula. And so, you know, so on the Rangula piece, like, I think it's really exciting, um, you know, when someone is in a community, they've exited their company, which IPO'd, um, and they go back and they find um, seed stage companies and they start mentoring them and putting funding in them and help growing them and sort of mentor them along. So really exciting from that standpoint, um, you know, plus what they're doing is really interesting. Um, you know, they're enabling companies to basically make sure their systems are safe. Yeah, uh, I've met Scythe's founder. I know his name is mm-hmm. Bryson Bort. Bryson's a really, really smart guy. Bryson is really involved with, like, the Industrial Control Systems Village out of DEF CON. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, this product, I've talked about it with him, and look, what we just read there was, look, it was laced with a lot of marketing speak. Right. So to distill it down to what it really does, think about it as 
almost like a Rubik's Cube for security sandboxing. Like, let's say, for instance, it's um, you have an enterprise and you want to test Mirai, but you want to test it in only a certain space or you only want to have it sent to certain ports or something like that. That's what this is able to do. That's really, like, you can basically sandbox attacks and figure out where your holes are before your adversaries figure out how to do it. I think that is something that is really, really interesting because it's, you know, it's attack attack in a box. And you can figure it out with your own people and shore everything up before you have a chance to see yourself on cyberscoop.com or the Washington Post or something like that. I think that any enterprise, small, big, whatever, if you have the possibility to do that, you would want to do this. Absolutely. This is is a very, very big part of what is going into the future of security testing, and I think that Bryson and Scythe have a really interesting product. And with Ron, uh, I I think it's really interesting that Ron is leading this. We're going to talk to Ron soon, Mm -hmm. and when he comes aboard, we definitely want to talk to him about this and all of the companies that he's been mentoring since uh, Tenable has been IPOing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, okay, now on to our interview with Scout CEO Mike DeCesar. Mike's going to talk to us about how enterprises are dealing with the convergence of IT and OT, as well as telling us what it's like to take a company public. He also has some advice for entrepreneurs listening on to talk about the differences between raising private funding and preparing for an IPL. Check it out. Okay, we are here with Mike DeCesar, CEO of Forescout. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I'd love for us to start off by if you could give our listeners an idea of what Forescout's primary focus is. Yeah, so Forescout is a network-based cybersecurity company uh, that focuses on a new emerging category called visibility, which in very simple terms is we answer a question that is fundamental for any IT leader in today's day and age, which is with clarity, we give them visibility into what what it is that's on the network. And by having visibility of what's on the network, then organizations can deploy their cybersecurity resources towards the things that are most vulnerable. Mike, we hear so much about the number of entry points that hackers and bad actors use to gain access to business networks, especially with the growth of IoT. From your experience in talking with your customers, what's the best way for security teams to deal with how complex that problem is? So first, to understand how to deal with it, you have to understand kind of where it came from. And, you know, if you think back in the first 10 to 15 years of the Internet, you know, we had less than a billion devices connected online worldwide. And, you know, Gartner's prediction is that that'll be over two, you know, 20 billion devices by the end of 2020. So we just have to understand, you know, we're seeing more devices come online every six months now than the first first 10 years of the internet combined. And if you, t- if, you, if you take that to a company and you think about what challenges that provides, you know, even 10 years ago, which was the kind of introduction of the iPhone, prior to that, CIOs, chief information officers, really were able to substantially control everything that was allowed online. You know, there was Windows, you know, machines that we'd give our employees where we'd have a chance to buy the machine and load it with things like antivirus and DLP and encryption, all these products before it's given to our users. We had, you know, servers at that point that you were able to purchase physical servers and load them with products and then put them in your own data centers. And, you know, when we had mobile, we had Blackberries which connected to a server in the data center called BEZ, or the BlackBerry server. And besides that, the policy in most companies was nothing else was allowed online. And if you, if you kind of start with BYOD, which was on, and I'll never forget this, kind of the day the iPhone came out, you know, the, the kind of the fight with our own IT department about whether this thing was a business tool that should be let online or a personal tool, you know, that's given way to the Android and now to all of these different flavors of IoT. So kind of when you think about corporations' perspectives, they've now had to move from controlling everything that was allowed online to really just allowing everything to come in and then figuring out how to secure those devices once they're in a, a company's environment. So. That's the challenge that organizations are up against. Um, the way that they fix it is really that they need a different approach towards cybersecurity. 
Um, when there was only a very small number of operating systems and they were all fundamentally open, it was reasonable for companies like the antivirus players and some of the larger players to have a different version of their product that ran on Windows and Linux and the, and the very small number of operating systems they were dealing with. But that same agent-based approach does really, really doesn't work in the world of I, IoT because you're, you're dealing with millions of different devices, you know, tens of thousands of different types of operating systems, and it's really making the world kind of wake up and realize that a different approach needs to be taken. So, Mike, you're well aware that IoT now bleeds into the industrial Internet of Things. I mean, IoT is not just so much our phones and our smartwatches and our Fitbits, but also we're talking heavy machinery that's used in manufacturing and in power companies. So, uh, with the rise of the inter industrial Internet of Things, it means the line is blurring between information technology and operational technology. How does Forescout help organizations get a handle on how to wrap their arms around those lines being blurred? So when, when, when you define IoT, you know, mo most companies, when you sit down with them, would look at that as all of the different devices that have found their way into their campus environments okay. that don't support agents, right? Things like HVAC controllers on every wall and TVs that are in conference rooms and security cameras. And, and they, they have the exact same characteristic as the OT world does, which is it's not, it's in most cases, they are not open operating systems, and you don't have the ability to install agents or any software on those devices. That same challenge that companies have about how to secure those IoT devices carries into the OT world. And, you know, most, most companies, the, the IT responsibility for the OT part, like the people that are maintaining those networks, are usually under the GM that runs that business unit. And you see lots of companies that are now starting to wake up post-WannaCry and realizing that, that you have this whole other part of your network, but, you know, whereas it might be inconvenient if someone like you or I on our work laptop has ransomware on it, it's incredibly concerning when something like that spills into a mission-critical system. You have companies like FedEx and Maersk and others that were quite vocal about the impact of a, of a WannaCry on their earnings. So, you know, bad actors see that, and, and there's, a, there's a kind of a, a mad scramble going on around the world right now where companies are dealing with the fact that, you know, these OT networks that have been online for, you know, a long time, and, you know, whereas maybe you thought you, uh, you know, were buying an industrial control system from Siemens or, you know, GE or one of the bigger OT providers, what you were actually buying was a product with an older embedded version of the Windows operating system called XP, and you have that same vulnerability. And, you know, I see, I see kind of global organizations really scrambling with both of those challenges, which are both IoT and OT, you know, devices that don't uh, you know, kind of subscribe to the additional, you know, the original approach towards cybersecurity, but are every bit a part of their network and part of the threat landscape that they need to protect against. So talking about this a little bit more, uh, for, you know, IT and OT convergence, in order for the security aspect to work, you need buy-in from both sides of that equation. And you talked about a little bit about an overarching person that oversees everything inside a business. But what's your advice for companies that need the two sides and more than just a general manager overseeing it? Uh, what's your advice for companies that need the two sides to play nice with one another as these lines continue to blur? So every company needs their IT and OT sides to play nice with each other, right? I mean, it's it's not necessarily the organizational boundaries that are driving this. It's business cases. And I'll, and I'll, I'll give you a real example, and then I'll come back to your question directly. So, you know, I live in California. Our power provider is PG&E. Up until about three or four years ago, um, the OT side of PG&E, which was your house, uh, had really was not connected to the IT side. You know, you'd have somebody would come out in a van, and they'd knock on your front door, and they would ask to get into your garage to read your power meter. And what they were doing is trying to take, you know, your power usage so they can bill you correctly. And then they would go back and manually into the IT side bill you correctly. And PG&E came out and installed smart meters on everybody's house. So you got this little, you know, this little thing, this transponder that was mounted to, the, to your power, you know, system on the outside of your house. And now IT and OT have converged because now PG&E can just beacon down to my house they can try to get power usage, and then they can transpond that number over into their billing system and bill me correctly. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of examples around the world of those type of scenarios. So 
it's not necessarily that companies are dealing with IT and OT coming together. It's that as we become a more connected society, there is an expectation that things will be much more automated than they have been in the past, and that's where IT and OT are coming together. And you know, there's examples across almost any critical infrastructure environment that would be very similar. Um, you, you very often have executives tell you that these systems are air-gapped off from each other, and in, in our experience, in almost every place that we plug our product in, we show them right away that there are communications happening between those systems on a, on a very regular basis. So I see lots of organizations that are, that are organizing around this. Uh, it is very common these days that the chief information officer that has typically been on top of the IT part of the world is now picking up responsibility for the OT side as well. And that's the advice really that I would give corporations is don't wait until you have some high profile breach on the OT side to realize that you need the same governance and, and ownership of your OT world to get in front of that. So with IT and OT coming together, we begin to hear a lot of terms like orchestration. We've talked to a lot of people about what that means and we get different answers all the time. What does it mean to you and how organizations can use that to strengthen their security posture? Or, uh, orchestration is definitely becoming one of the more overly used words in the world of cybersecurity. So it, it is, it's, it's, it's kind of good, good to get the definition on this. But so, so, so let me just start that by kind of, again, let, let, me, let me just give a very brief overview of what Forescout does, and I'll explain how our orchestration approach is, is really different than the rest of the industry. Is, you know, what we do is we plug into network infrastructure. So we are a network-based cybersecurity company, meaning we plug into the Cisco switches or Juniper switches the firewalls from Palo Alto and Checkpoint and Juniper and all the companies that are out there. And we turned that data that we pull off the network into answering that fundamental question for companies about what is on my network. And the reason that's such a critical you know, step in the process here is organizations can have every cybersecurity product in the world installed on 99% of the devices. The bad actor finds the 1% that's not secured into an organization, and breach after breach is showing that the bad actors can move east-west or laterally fairly easily, right? They get in kind of through an open window, and then they can move anywhere inside the house. So having that complete visibility of all assets on the network, physical, virtual, cloud-based assets in one place is, is why our business has been doing so well over the course of the last few years. But we recognize that once we answer that question, we call that device visibility about what is on the network, that we can then share that data with other, with other systems. And if you look at most of the bigger cybersecurity companies, you've got companies like Symantec that have, you know, SEP13, which is their integrated, you know, orchestration framework. You've got, you know, companies like McAfee through EPO that have their approach. I mean, almost every big cyber company is going to have of some open partner framework, but the reality is that the, the bigger companies don't tend to integrate to each other because they want to be the orchestration framework. And uh, this is just unlike any segment of the IT industry where, you know, there's no concept in cybersecurity about some company getting big and having 30 or 40 or 50 percent market share because there's no other place in IT where you've got bad people on the other side of the planet trying to break your products every single day. Right. You know, it's why you see someone like a Palo Alto that goes to this, you know, old static industry called Firewall and all of a sudden reinvents it and becomes one of the largest players in cyber because there was a new approach towards the concept the firewall, that, that happens all across cybersecurity. And you can see it in you know, the EDR vendors these days that are becoming quite problematic for antivirus. You're seeing it in the next generation firewall players that are becoming problematic for the historical firewall players, right? So what you're left with is this massively fragmented set of best-of-breed technologies. And it's very common from the biggest on, on, you know, on down to some of the smaller companies where they've got you know, 10, 20, 50, even 100 different cybersecurity products. And the byproduct of that is that you end up with a lot of human beings that are taking the input of one cyber product and then having to turn around and do something with a different cybersecurity product. So with that as the backdrop, the way Forescout has approached this is very practically, instead of trying to come to the world and say, and, hey, look at us as a generic orchestration framework and integrate to us and let us handle all those integrations. We look at our base product, and if someone has installed device visibility and they have the situational awareness or asset inventory or what we call device visibility of everything that's on the network, what can we share that with? 
And we've gone out and we've built these integrations to the vulnerability management players, to the SIM vendors, to the you know, companies like ServiceNow and Palo Alto and Splunk, and, and, and we've seen quite a bit of success there. And in, 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 every, in every one of these cases, we are either sharing this deep, you know, rich set of device visibility, all the attributes running on a machine with a different security product, or we are taking action on behalf of a security product that can't take action on its own. So the reason that you've seen so much conversation about this in energy is really because of that fragmentation that we see in cyber, and, and we think we've got quite a good story about how to solve that. So, Mike, going back to visibility, there is so much new tech out there with the growth of the Internet of Things, yet organizations are still trying to secure so much legacy tech that they've been hanging on to. Do you think that we're ever going to reach a balance where things are secure by design, that they will stay secure five to ten years into their use? But when you say secure by design, are you talking about the kind of the, the, the manufacturers of the products themselves? Keeping their products secure. Can you just explain that a little bit, a little bit deeper, so I make sure I answer the right question? Sure. Uh, when I so when I'd say secure by design, I, I kind of mean it from, you know, you could look at it from a supply chain standpoint, or just look at it from a coding standpoint as well. You can either we could talk about it from just you know from a software standpoint where it's just a secure sure. coding thing, or we could talk about it from the standpoint of there should be more communication and more integration along the supply chain to make sure that every step of the way that these the, the companies sure. that are in the supply chain are taking the right course of action when it comes to securing their part of the Got supply it. chain. Do you think that we'll ever get to, you know, either of those points where we're going from, you know, from the uh, advent of a product where it's secure by design and getting the supply chain to a point that everybody's really communicating on, uh, uh, you know, on a good standpoint to where that, you know, the, the security holes that come along in the supply chain are being fixed rather quickly. Sure. So, so first, is, let me let me let me take the first, which is the devices. Just you know, recognize that we're in a world right now where the number of devices coming online is is exploding incrementally, right? So the attack surface itself, you know, the the sheer number of devices that would need to be secure by design is just growing at such an incredible pace that it's very difficult for companies to keep up with that. And, you know, as I said earlier, you know, whereas maybe 10 years ago, you know, a company would have, you know, sub 10 different operating systems in their environment, it's not uncommon now for us to walk into organizations that have hundreds of thousands of different operating systems online today, right? You know, whereas, you know, every machine, every PC 10 years ago all had a common operating system called Windows. Right. Every TV today has a proprietary operating system, right? You know, Samsung and LG and Sony all have their own operating system. So just there's a sheer volume issue in this. And, you know, again, if you're a corporation, if every single supplier in your environment is completely secure by design except one, just recognize that the bad actors are going to find that one in. It's a, it's a, it's, it's definitely a challenge that organizations are dealing with. And, you know, when something like the Mirai botnet hits, which infected security cameras, you know, the first kind of, you know, in the news with folks like yourself was, well, God, you know, we got to hope those security manufacturers should be more careful and they should keep their security cameras, you know, more, more secure. That's just not a practical strategy for companies, right? You know, if you're expected to allow every possible device into your environment, the strategy of hoping that each one of those manufacturers keeps their own product safe, it's probably not a very good strategy, which is why we do so well. As you know, we let them come onto the network and then we, we, we talk to the network about whether those devices are secure. But on the other side of it, what you asked is kind of like on, on, on the security by design standpoint into software, I mean, software is by, by inherently defective. I mean, there's a reason that there's patches from vendors. It doesn't make a difference if it's your smartphone on through the most complicated systems. You know, you are fairly constantly getting updates to the operating systems, and most of the time, those are patching some hole that despite their best efforts in, in quality assurance to produce secure products, it's just they're complicated and, you know, something needs to be patched. And that's why you're seeing a bit of a collision course between the system management world, companies like Big Fix and Alteris and SCCM, and the cybersecurity world is when, when something is deemed to be, you know, have a problem with it, the first response is you have to go patch that device with a new version of the operating system that that manufacturer put out. So, Yes, I would, I would. I would love to believe we might get to a place downstream that you know devices are coming out and they're bugless and you know bad actors can't find a way in. But I just, I think the sheer volume of devices and new operating systems coming online probably makes that fairly unrealistic. So the VC in me wants to talk about your sort of fundraising, your IPO. 
Um, so talk about um, the last couple of rounds of financing and, and, and the IPO process, anything you would have changed? You know, I mean, see, see, when, when by the process of raising money and going public is, 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 is something that is a great thing to go through. Um, you know, the way that I look at it is that I get, you know, the opportunity to present to some of the smartest individuals in the planet. It's almost free management consulting for a few weeks because you've got these graduates from some of the best schools in the world that are kind of looking at you relative to other public companies that are out there, and there's really great data that can be deemed by that. I mean, from Scouts' perspective, we're focused on building a strong business. I mean, we believe that we've kind of raised the money that we need to turn this into a, you know, big-time, profitable, high-growth cybersecurity company, and we're very, very happy with the investors that we have in this company and the stock and very supportive of the business that we're going after. So um, I'm not sure that I'd want to do it again anytime soon. This is absolutely a, a, you know, it's a very taxing process, not just on me, but on the company. But um, I can tell you this, the Four Scout employees are all very proud of what we've accomplished in the last couple of years and really excited about the future we have in front of us. Any advice you'd give to um, someone out there raising a Series A on, as they sort of think about also going through an IPO sometime in the future? Well, there's a huge gap between raising a Series A and then being able to take a company public. You know, that's there's, there's 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 a reason that there's really only a handful of companies our size in the cyber world that are public that have been able to pull that off. But I can tell you this. I mean, when I look out at some of the smaller companies that are out there, um, there's just great ideas out in the world of cybersecurity. I mean, as as much as we make about all these breaches and it's just such you know interesting news conversations when you hear about one of these large attacks out there, there is a lot of intellectual capital that might being thrown at really good ideas and I'm always amazed at how strong some of these entrepreneurs are that have built these companies from scratch that you know become profitable quicker than most companies and they're growing fast and all that and um, just I guess my advice to folks is that you, you, you need to have a very good sound idea in the world of cyber to get attention these days because there's been so much money and so many up-and-coming companies that are out there in the world of cyber. You know, if you, if you ever go to the RSA conference and you just sit back and look at the sheer magnitude of companies, that's the biggest cyber event of the year. You know, there's the sheer magnitude of companies that are out there. Just understand that, you know, companies only have a very limited amount to evaluate new technologies each year and just got to make sure you have an idea that's going to be able to stand out. So on to curiosity, we asked all of our guests one random question. And the question for you, Mike, is I know you're a big popular culture music guy. If you had to pick a song to be your entrance music, what would it be? If I had to pick a song to be my entrance music, what it would be. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure what song I would pick, but I can tell you it would definitely be by the band Fish. Um, okay. That is absolutely my favorite band. It is, uh, it's a jam band that's been around for a long time. It's uh, one of the reasons that I love Fish so much is that it's, uh, you know, 99% you know, of the world probably has no idea who Fish is, but the 1% that does is more obsessed about that band than, than probably most I people know, are. Uh, I have <laughs> friends that, that follow Fish around, I know they have a highly, highly dedicated fan base. I think there are some people in the CyberScoop office too that follow Fish around as well. So I, oh, that's great. I'm very familiar with how with how fanatic you guys can be. So I, I'm not sure what song I would pick, but it would definitely be by Fish. Okay, great. All right, Mike, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again to Mike for joining us. Greg, a cybersecurity executive following around a band called Fish. Jen, I am repressing every urge I have right now to fire off about 20 dad jokes that have some bad cybersecurity puns in them. <laughs> I, I'm really... Please spare us. Uh, I'm, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep them. I'll just go annoy my staff with them and they can viral <laughs> in the, into the weekend. Sorry, so. staff. Stay oh. curious. Okay, thank you. That's it for this week, everyone. 